Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2017 Southern California Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of her talk is National Security Challenges for the New Administration. It was recorded on January 23rd, 2017. It may surprise you folks that I think actually the biggest national security challenges that our country is facing in a time of growing dangers in the international order and in the unraveling of the order itself, that most of the challenges we actually should be most concerned about are domestic policy challenges. Um, So the talk I'm going to give is based on a chapter that Jim Mattis, Jim Ellis, and I wrote for George Schultz's book, Blueprint for America. Is that right, Colin? Blueprint for America is the title of it? Which we wrote last winter. Um, And the three of us, I think, continue to believe uh, most of what's said in it. Jim uh, affirmed quite a lot of it in his confirmation hearings a couple of weeks ago. So... For those of you who have been living in a cave for the last several months, we have the first uh, senior military person recently retired to be to serve in a cabinet position since George Marshall, and that is Hoover's own Jim Mattis, who is the Secretary of Defense as of Friday, and will be an extraordinarily good one for the country. Um, So when Jim, Jim, and I wrote this chapter, we looked at what we thought the big challenges were, and we identified seven. The affordability of the defense program, uh, relearning the art of strategy as a government, diversifying the tools that we bring to bear on international challenges, uh, improving the contributions of our allies, managing a slave... Spate slate of international problems. Um, uh, We identified a couple of problems that we think we're not worried enough about. Uh, And I want to add one to the list that wasn't on our, in our original chapter, which is the challenge of getting anything done, which I think is actually going to be quite substantial in the new administration for reasons we'll talk about. Uh, So first, the affordability of the defense undertaking. What you see here is a breakdown of the federal budget. You can see uh, it is from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. It's based on 2015 figures, but these are roughly roughly, uh, stable proportions. What you see is that roughly 16% of what our federal government spends, it spends on defense, 24% on social security, 25% on healthcare, 10% on safety programs, but what I want to draw your attention to is the interest on the federal debt. Um, Because uh, what, we have been living through a very weird age in which inflation has been virtually non-existent. And our government is acting as though that is now the natural order and will continue. And I want instead to show you what the Congressional Budget Office's estimate of the debt service our country will be paying at their, uh, what they believe interest rates will be, which is quite a modest projection of what interest rates are likely to be. What you can see from this chart is that if Donald Trump uh, 
is president of our country for two terms, and this doesn't include any policy changes that he might bring to bear. This is simply a projection of what the existing federal debt will cost us at likely interest rates over time. We will be spending more on servicing our national debt than we now spend on the defense budget. Right? So the biggest national security challenge we should be worried about is that unless we stop spending more money than we take in, debt service is going to crowd out the space for all discretionary spending, including defense spending. We are adding roughly a billion dollars a day to the national debt. Um, and that, that has been sustainable only because of a marvelous set of circumstances whereby the Chinese couldn't afford to unload dollars, the euro crisis meant there weren't alternative currencies to serve in a holding to serve as a holding currency. Um, this isn't the natural order of things. It was a, an anomalous set of circumstances that we ought not to bank our national security on, my friends. Uh, so, sequestration has aggravated this problem in that the Budget Control Act that Congress passed, uh, what, four years ago now? Someone correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, uh, limited the amount of money that the federal government could spend, and if the budget went over that, automatic reductions across the board kicked in, right? Equal reductions for defense and for domestic policy. And within defense, it required an across-the-board 10% cut. So the leadership of the department had no ability to prioritize what needed doing and flow money to the most important things going on. It required a 10% across the board cut, which all of you are business people. You know that's a terrible management strategy. Um, and uh, just to make you even more anxious about the affordability of our defense effort, uh, procurement processes, right? It used to be the case that, that the defense, that American defense spending and the defense enterprise was the technology generator for our broader economy, right? The canonical example is uh, the internet, right? Starts out as a, as a defense investment and people find all sorts of broader uh, applications for. That arrow has been reversed partly for the magnificent reason that the American tech sector is so vibrant and not requiring of that kind of support, right? This is the success of innovation, that it's not happening inside the defense program so much as more broadly in the American economy. But there is one downside to it, and that is that um, the procurement processes for the Department of Defense are now so cumbersome this is the work of the Congress. They're now so cumbersome that they're an enormous impediment to bringing that technology into the department's functions. 
It doesn't need to have originated in the department, but the hostility of the procurement system to bringing that in, to bringing technology in. And let me just give you the example that makes everybody in the Defense Department start crying. It takes, on average, 81 months for the Department of Defense to buy a new IT system. It took Apple 24 months to develop and market the iPhone. 81 months. That, that is such a high burden against being able to bring into the defense enterprise the kinds of technologies that we need to sustain for our, to keep our technological edge. Um, President Eisenhower famously said, when, when challenged about uh, the rather draconian defense budget that he was putting in place, when, when the military services very obviously wanted more money, President Eisenhower said, I owe the country both security and solvency. And, and we need to think long and hard about the affordability of our defense program and the priorities we are allowing in the spending of our federal budget. Unless we get reform of entitlement programs, that graph is going to dominate American national security policy. Uh, the second thing I want to talk about that we talked about a lot in our chapter for the for the Blueprint book, is about relearning the art of strategy. All of you are business people, so you know that strategy is basically about setting out and executing priorities. Right? The national, has anybody here read the national security strategy that President Obama put forward? Um, good. This tells me you apportion your time extremely well, <laughs> because these things are it's like a Christmas tree that you hang every ornament on, right? Everything's important. But of course, you can't build a strategy if everything's important. You need to establish priorities, and, and strategy is about the consequences of threat and action. And in the defense enterprise, as in business, there's so much that's outside your ability to control. So the rule of thumb that Jim, Jim, and I like to use is that good strategy means that you have the fewest big regrets when things go wrong, right? Because things are going to go wrong. That's the nature of conflict. The challenge is making sure you have the fewest big regrets. And that's how to, to prioritize the defense undertaking. Um, that what we have mostly lacked in the last at least eight years, and I would argue, and Jim and Jim would also argue longer, um, is defined political ends that allow the strategy process to work. You know, President Eisenhower didn't call his strategy document that, that the administration issued every year, he didn't call it a strategy. He called it a basic national security policy, right? Because the policy is about your ends. The strategy is the tools you use to get to those ends. But, but we have been unclear about our ends. And we have absolutely had a disconnect between the grandiose ends that we want and the very limited means we have been willing to put to bear to achieve those aims. So bringing those back into alignment is the art of strategy. Uh, one other 
two other things, I guess I would say, on relearning the art of strategy. Uh, one is that uh, in defense, there, there's very often a sense of false confidence, right? That we will know what the world will look like in 20 years. We will know where our areas of interest will lie, and we can apportion our resources to it. Bob Gates, the former defense secretary, has a magnificent line on this where he says that we are perfect in our ability to predict future wars. We have been wrong every single time, right? So, so you have to think about prioritization. Leave yourself a wide margin for error. So if you think, for example, about President Obama's timetable for leaving Iraq, or the troop caps that he put in place in Iraq or in Afghanistan. Among the many reasons that's bad strategy is it leaves you too narrow a margin of error. When things in this wide open system change, you need to be able to have shock absorbers. And that's what a wide margin of error gives you. Um, the last thing I'll say on the point of strategy is a subject near and dear to Jim Mattis's and my collective heart on this which is that very often people who talk about strategy, um, you know, they'll come up with a brilliant strategy that is actually wholly unsuited to American politics. My favorite example of it is strategic communications. It's very popular in the Defense Department to say, we need to be able to speak with one voice so that nobody misunderstands American intent. That is impossible in this beautiful, diverse, um, combative country that we all love so much, right? The, the challenge for strategy is actually playing to your strengths, not pretending that you can be somehow different, better, nobler, more disciplined than we actually are. And so if you think about the United States and the world, you need to think about a strategy that, that builds on who we are and what we are, a diverse, a disputatious society that, uh, in which we are always arguing about these problems, and it is the robustness of the consensus that emerges from those arguments that leads us to fewer big regrets than most other countries tend to have in their foreign policy. Third thing I want to say is about diversifying our tools. It has been the case for about the last 20 years that a larger and larger proportion of our national security policy has migrated into military hands. And that's not a sort of seven days in May military takeover. It's been a very uh, popular subject in the last few months since President Trump has nominated quite a number of retired senior military folks. I would just tell you, based on the research that Jim Mattis and I did for our book on civil-military relations, that um, we're likely to see more and more of this because the public has such an enormous high level of trust in the military that they do not have in our elected officials. That what has the support for the military has remained roughly stable over time support for elected political leaders and trust in elected political leaders has plummeted. And so on issues where um, elected officials are fearful of getting it wrong and losing public trust, 
I think you will like Homeland Security. John Kelly, retired Marine General, uh, nominated for that, now confirmed. Jim Mattis, retired Marine General to be Secretary of Defense. I think you will increasingly see uh, senior military people nominated for those kinds of jobs because political leaders want to cling to the public trust in the military for important portfolios. That said, what we have seen is, um, is functions that have traditionally been civilian functions, the provision of development assistance, for example, um, a lot of high-level diplomatic negotiations, particularly with the most difficult states like Pakistan. Those have migrated into military channels uh, either because our civilian departments have, don't have the capacity for it, that is, they are too weak in the function of their job, um, or because of a lack of trust by the elected political leadership. That, um, and it is also true that our elected political leaders have narrowed the scope of our military engagement to the use of military forces or sanctions. Right? And for President Obama, the combination was small numbers of special operations forces. So you didn't suggest a national commitment to the outcome, coupled with economic sanctions, because that's easy and uh, not as threatening. Uh, those are both suboptimal ways to, to do business on the national security portfolio. And institutionalizing cooperation is actually a much cheaper approach to do that. That we have narrowed our range of tools to only a couple, when in fact, what the United States is good at is a much broader employment of economic, diplomatic, geographic, information, cultural, even ethnic and religious uh, cards work to our advantage. And we are just either too lazy or the departments haven't been adequately led and strengthened. Last thing I will say about this um, is that in the case of the State Department, American diplomats are fond of saying that, you know, it's a crisis, there, there are more members of army bands than there are diplomats, and only, if only we had more money, we could solve this problem. That's actually not true. Um, it is true that the Army has more people playing in bands than we have diplomats. Um, but it's also true that the size of the military is roughly, well, let's see, there are 6,000 foreign service officers, there are, what, 580,000 active duty members of the military, another 580,000 in the reserve. Um, so, so it's not a fair comparison. The point I'm trying to make, though, is that the problem is that the State Department actually has a, a cultural management deficit. They make very poor use of the resources they do have for reasons of institutional culture. That's what should be fixed. And let me just give you one quick way to suggest doing that better, which is that in the Defense Department, as many of you know, the, um, the Deputy Secretary of Defense is always either a business person or the day-to-day -day manager of the department. It's their job to make trains run on time, to make sure the organization functions. Um, in the State Department, there is no equivalent person, right? You have to go down to the assistant secretary for management 
before anybody has an institutional care about how do we do our job and how do we ensure we are using resources to best advantage. That's a relatively easy fix. In fact, the Obama administration made a good appointment of Jack Lew uh, as the Deputy Secretary of Defense, somebody who really cared about the management, and then they pulled him six months later to go run OMB and put a Foreign Service officer in that position. The State Department, mostly what it needs to be better at its job is attentive, consistent management at high levels. Fourth thing uh, that we identified is sharing the burden. Now, I know President uh, Trump has said a lot of ungracious things about American ally America's allies. Um, and I wish he weren't needlessly antagonizing the people who actually want us to succeed in the world. But he's not wrong in a lot of his complaints, right? This is a chart showing the defense spending of NATO allies. We have for at least 20 years, as an alliance, agreed that we would all spend at least 2% of our gross domestic product on defense. Uh, three NATO countries besides the United States meet that standard, Greece, which actually in the midst of the Greek financial crisis is sad more than anything else and shows the inability of the government to uh, restructure its priorities. Poland, which sits in a dangerous neighborhood, and the United Kingdom, which is only above the 2% line because it includes all of its veteran spending in that, i.e. they cheat to make the 2% number. Estonia came up to 2% this last year. Nobody else comes anywhere near close, right? So we have allowed to accrue to the United States over the last 70 years more and more responsibility for other people's security outcomes than they are taking for themselves. And President Trump's not wrong to stomp and hiss about that. Um, for me, the question is not, should America's allies be doing more? But what is the effective way to get our allies to do more? And I would suggest that the course he's taking is unlikely to achieve that result, and that, in fact, the course the Secretary of Defense is taking, which is to say, we're so grateful to have help. The world's growing more challenging. Let's work together to find better ways for getting better outcomes. Setting allies up to be successful is a much uh, a much better way to think about how to get allies to do more. And, and you know, just one closing thing on that, which is that uh, international cooperation and international institutions are, are out of fashion at the moment, and I share the frustration everybody has with them. But it's worth recalling that the international order that currently exists wasn't built by starry-eyed liberals. It was built by the hard men who won World War II. And they tried to institutionalize cooperation among countries that share our values because they understood what a near-run win World War II had been for us and wanted us next time to have a standing start that put us at greater likelihood and lower cost of winning big wars important to our country. So this is a chart that shows the largest defense budgets in the world. 
What do you notice about it, my friends? <laughs> so one thing I will tell you is that the China number should probably be double what it is, right? Because the Chinese do not report accurately their defense spending, and they also, um, uh, they also don't count quite a lot of things that they should be counting in their defense spending. What, anybody notice anything about that? Say again, say again. Yes, yeah, Saudi Arabia is spending a ton of money. Um, Russia's spending a bunch of money. That shouldn't surprise you. What else? Notice how many of those countries are American allies. That really matters. It matters that the world's most capable, strongest powers are friends of ours and want us to succeed. We ought not to take that for granted, but we also ought to realize how strong a hand, you know, President Trump has talked about America's allies as though they are um, detrimental to us. Um, and in fact, playing team sports is always a better strategy than not playing team sports. And the fact that we have so many capable allies just means we need to share the burden differently and better. It doesn't mean we ought to alienate the people who actually want us to succeed at what we want to succeed at. So that's the long windup to talking about what I'm sure most of you really want to talk about, which is the shape of the world and the threats emergent from it. I am hoping that we will spend all of our question time on that. So let me just give you a couple of things to respond to about it. Uh, China and Russia. They are both big problems for different reasons. China because of its success, and Russia because of its failure. Uh, China, Shockey's grand theory of, of international peace and security is that the United States doesn't really need to worry about rising powers for two reasons. First, because rising powers are brash, they're nationalistic, they're nouveau riche, they swagger. In fact, they're a lot like us. And we're pretty good at figuring out ways that we and they can work together to give them what they want at, while we keep what we want. Um, our, our track record's actually pretty good on that. The countries we tend to fight wars with are countries that are willing to accept a bad outcome for themselves, provided it's a bad outcome for others. We have a really hard time figuring out how to work with those countries. Um, and I would argue Russia is definitely one of those countries right now. The second reason I don't typically worry about rising powers is that uh, it, it has been impossible for a country to grow consistently prosperous without also becoming politically liberal. That is, that the values that, that we treasure and the values that we practice that make us both free and prosperous have not had an alternative, right? So with the collapse of the Soviet Union, Frank Fukuyama's book about the end of history is much maligned, but he's basically right. There hasn't been an ideological challenge, another way to get what most people want, which is prosperity and liberty outside of the American order. But China is the challenge to that, right? Because for 40 years, they have been growing prosperous without it. 
Um, so having succeeded along 40 years of time is not insignificant. Whether they can get past the middle income trap um, and get to a service-based economy that can sustain itself without political liberty, which the government is unwilling to grant its people, really is the biggest question in international politics right now. Because it will draw it will draw others to the authoritarian capitalist model if they believe the Chinese can succeed at this. Uh, and the jury's still out. The second priority that Jim, Jim and I hit is the combined terrorism problem. And we view it as having both a Shia and a Sunni, uh, a Shia and a Sunni uh, component. The, the Sunni component to it is ISIS and al-Qaeda. Uh, the Shia component to it is Iran, which has been playing a very weak hand very well in the last 10 years in the Middle East in terms of destabilizing its neighbors, in terms of positioning itself as a protector of values, in terms of uh, normalizing the use of terror. Recall they tried to assassinate the Saudi ambassador less than two miles from the White House, and very nearly succeeded. And the Obama administration did nothing in retaliation for that. Um, so, so that would be our second big problem, that we need to both crush ISIS and checkmate Iran in the Middle East. A third problem, and one that we didn't think people are worried enough about, is drug gangs operating on the southwest border of the United States. That, that we have effectively lost control of the border. This is not, we're not making a statement about immigration, we're making a statement about national security, about the freedom of action that drug gangs crossing the border. And let me just give you one example um, that, that, one worrisome example, which is that, has it ever occurred to any of you to wonder why we why we're not more worried about terrorists coming across the southern border, right? Because all sorts of people come across the southern border, and yet it doesn't appear terrorists do. Have you ever thought to wonder why? The, the answer is actually weirdly American and also terrifying, which is that the drug gangs that operate largely with impunity on the border ensure terrorists don't cross the border because they don't want the law enforcement attention that real concern about terrorism on the border would bring. Like, it's, it's weirdly American, right, that we've outsourced this, but it's also not a good answer. Uh, one last thing I will say about international crises, one that is not on Jim's Jim's and my list, and that is North Korea. Uh, North Korea is a problem. It's a dangerous, unstable country that could collapse at any minute and run by a genuine lunatic, and they have nuclear weapons because the last two administrations chose not to prevent them from having it. They chose the stability of North Korea over the growing danger of its nuclear weapons program, which, by the way, is a similar choice the Chinese have made. Um, but we, don't, we view North Korea as a regional danger um, and not as a danger to the United States. We think their program, while unpredictable, is largely defensive in nature. And last, I'm going to close with a quick comment about the difficulty of getting anything done. 
As you guys know, the American government's basically designed to do nothing without broad consensus. And one of the things I notice about most of the appointments in the Trump administration is that they are people who, while extraordinarily well qualified, um, haven't worked the gears, the block and tackle of the American government very much. And the people in the White House are the president's political loyalists, and their views are often at very wide variance with the Secretary of Defense, the Homeland Security cabinet member, and Mr. Tillerson, if the Senate confirms him today. Um, I actually think what the biggest risk for the Trump administration is going to be the cabinet meeting, making a decision, people believing they know what's happening, and then the White House staff relitigating things, and nobody having clarity about what's going on, and everything bogging down until they get clearer lines of responsibility straightened out. Um, and Congress could very likely be unhelpful in this regard as well, given the, the president's views on Russia um, ending sanctions on Russia and some other things that Republicans in Congress are quite strongly opposed to. So with that cheery note, my friends, I will happily answer any questions that come across your mind. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.